and welcome back to the Kitabi Karwan podcast. Today I'm joined by a person who needs no introduction, Lord Meghnath Desai, a member of the House of Lords in the UK who's been a professor at the London School of Economics for over 38 years, has a career as an economist spanning over 50 years, 50 books and is renowned for his absolutely insightful insights into how economics has influenced the globe. He is a recipient of the Padma Bhushan in 2008. and his most recent work the poverty of political economy is what we're going to be talking about today without giving much away let's jump right into the interview hello everyone and welcome to the kitabi karwan podcast hello meghnad uh, and i say that with all the disclaimer that over email meghnad particularly asked me to call him meghnad otherwise i am enthralled by the fact that i got to call lord desai meghnad uh we heard today to talk about his new book and his love for reading and writing in general uh but before we kick things off meghnad could you just uh, give us a quick summary of the book the new book that you come out with 30 seconds or a minute on it well the book is basically about understanding why regularly good economic policy is supposed to be giving income tax cut to the rich and cutting the welfare payments to the poor you know whenever there's a crisis there is in you know, a sound economic policy good economic policy help the rich punish the poor and because the pandemic was going on and this was happening in a in a, in uk which is a rich country i said what's going on every time there is a crisis the same people suffer and 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 people just think that's normal where did this idea come from so being an economist i went a much more academic route to find out where this idea came from i didn't want to say oh capitalism is always like that or something like that so i just i had all the books on my on my shelf i have 10 at 10000 books in my old house i've moved out of that but so i'm a book buyer and a book reader okay. uh, so so you know so i had all of adam smith there all ricardo the mothers there so i started reading at the beginning of economics that's where in economics did i come from so i finally found it uh, in these are authors which everybody has read and everybody has analyzed but nobody spotted this said so it basically the and i nobody also spotted that the thing about this kind of economic belief has political roots mm-hmm. i it was the politics of the period when the mm-hmm. french revolution started in 1789 and then england started fighting france and the fear of the french revolution might come to england and displace the monarchy and all that that fear was very very acute there was a big debate going on and it's a part of that which the reaction to how to deal with the poor and so on arose so i finally located the precise economic pressures on the poor law i'll tell you about poor law in a minute and how malthus invented and and moral made up his theory of population and its purpose was basically to say don't give the money to the poor if you give money to the poor they'll only breed more people and they they will themselves cancel right. the the relief you are giving them so be hard on the poor just give them the minimum And then Ricardo, who was an amazing economist, logically and theoretically, 
maybe it's like a fundamental principle of economics that the value of labor is just what the laborer eats and his family, and you know that's what determines the wage. And you and you you can't alter the wage if you give more wage, profits suffer, and if profits suffer, the economy suffers. So this connection once made, and because Ricardo was a very good logician, mm -hmm. fantastic, determined economics for the next hundred years. And so what I then do is I say the root of this is that the parliament was based on a two-person franchise in the whole population. Right. People who were voting were only the rich, and mm -hmm. people who sat in parliament were only the rich, or the sons of the rich. And therefore, they were absolutely utterly uninterested in the poor. Right. And then it was the agitation for extending the franchise, mm -hmm. which changed economics. So in a right. sense, normally people say economic determines politics. I have reversed the thing and say, no. Actually, if you look at history, it is, is a struggle for extending the franchise, which took 100 years in, uh, in England which finally in 20th century, early 20th century, created redistributive economics, as they call it, when people thought about how to increase the wealth of the poor and so on. So okay. the book is basically about economic thinking and political action, how they interacted to make us arrive at a stage where redistributive economics is possible. And then what I, Said that unfortunately there were two kinds of redistributive economic proposed by accident, both from Cambridge, Pigou and Keynes, and how that debate, we wasted 50 years on that debate, or maybe more than that. And but at least now let us retrieve. Now with the pandemic, we have to say, look, what matters in economics is the lives and livelihoods of people. Yeah. Value of, you know, it basically has to be measured by are you improving the lives and livelihoods of people? Yeah. All people. And so I propose at the end that how to measure not just total GDP or per capita GDP, measure more than that. Yeah. He has left to live. Are you going to have a healthy life and for the whole population? So let us direct our attention. And don't think of poverty only in terms of food, only in terms of right. calories. Poor have a whole life. Right. Poor, poor should be allowed to live, live life. So that is that is the gist of it. So I want to improve the way economists think of poverty right. and about wealth. That, that's a very fair summary, Meghna. But you know, uh, when you were talking, I couldn't help but think of a couple of things, right? I mean... And here, just, just to play the devil's advocate in this particular scenario, right? Because you do argue that, uh, I mean, uh, essence of your argument is that we've drift, economics has drifted from its core purpose, right? But one might argue back that the drifting has come on the end of political economy and not economics as a discipline at large, right? So do you see, a, and but you did speak a lot about how politics also drove economics theory as well, right? I mean, one of the most fascinating uh, bits that you spoke about in in the earlier halves of your book is about uh, about Adam Smith's writing, right? Where he speaks yeah. about right recognizing uh, the value of the labor 
of the effort that a person's putting in and that having a direct impact in terms of people eventually recognizing the difference between wealth and income that gold and silver isn't the measurement of what a jurisdiction's income is and it's actually the value of what is being manufactured by the labor so in that sense do you see a distinction between political economy and economics as disciplines or do you see them as largely the same because politics is eventually guiding economics to that yeah it is the thing is obviously in one way these are old and modern names of economics political economy is a old name of economics and now we call it economic thinking more of a science political economy is not a science all that but as far as this particular subject is concerned i had to go to the origins of the subject with smith and ricardo because what we know is that some of this the whole notion of what is value and how do you measure value was the question that arendt put to them and arendt arendt you know, was a philosopher he was a sort of a very humane person and he said something very truthful but he never laid it down as a dogma you know in which way i say this is an inquiry but mm-hmm. what, what he called inquiry into the wealth of nations right. and the wealth of nations he says the productivity of the laborers right. and he's interested in the vast mass of people working and their welfare and he doesn't like slavery and he's got a very broad sympathy income malthus and ricardo and they narrow the sympathy they turn the value is this thing and nothing else and the value is measured by the amount of bread the, the, the workers family eat and how much hours it takes to make the bread and so the value of workers uh, uh, labor is the amount of labor to produce the bread and that's it and, and that's a law and and so and at one stage i quote uh, uh, ricardo said it's almost as certain as the law of gravity that wage should not be paid more you know this kind of very pretentious now everybody agrees in economics that what ricardo said is still valid you know came to the beautiful passage how what ricardo said about uh, there be no unemployment possibility you know was like conquered europe like inquisition now that i mean he is very dramatic way but in essence those kinds of things in economics i don't know the ricardo i can hear chancellor of the exchequer is talking and they talk the same language now i wanted to know why and so i have traced the roots of this belief to the poor law legislation which was valid in late late 18th century early 19th century <coughs> and then i mean it was actually very interesting uh, era in which the old era before uh, change that every parish like every district mm-hmm. was supposed to be responsible for the livelihood of all its citizens okay. and so if somebody could not work the parish had to provide the thing from church rates and poor rates and the person who could work so the the paupers can't work they were old or whatever they they're all right but the workers had to have a wage which would keep their family reproducing itself as it were mm-hmm. now this was done 
because you couldn't leave your parish and go anywhere else because you had to stay in your parish. This is pre capitalism. Now, that is a very benevolent, very benevolent system. Once capitalism comes, that goes. And then, unfortunately, the poor law is still based on old beliefs. So then they said, you should never pay an able bodied, unemployed person anything, make quite sure that he doesn't go around, you know, looking for You put him in a workhouse. He and his family go to the workhouse until he can find work. You know, Charles Dickens writes about that very well. So that kind of misery that people who are able-bodied were able to work, certainly unemployment comes. And unemployment was not known in the 18th century, certainly. So the response to unemployment is a very harsh sort of welfare state. I mean, we call it welfare state, very harsh treatment of workers. But, and that has stayed. That is more or less, it may have some on the base, but by and large, even in UK well now, the big, uh, big urgency is to cut income tax. Mm -hmm. Everybody, the, the government is saying, when well, how soon can we cut income tax? You know, the people are suffering from inflation and, and lack of income, they're not suffering from paying tax. So that has to be located into or its underlying reason. And I look at it in the politics. Right. Right. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, I mean, I think it's impossible to have a conversation of which mentions capitalism, unfair treatment to workers without the M word that is Marx being dropped into the conversation. Right. I mean, I noticed, uh, I mean, if yeah. throughout the book also, you, you do mention Marx, but, and maybe Engels to a bit, but not, uh, not a lot. Do you, so, I mean, I, I just wanted to pick your brain as to what you think was their influence in terms of guiding, they say, like the ideal premise being, I mean, Malthus and Ricardo kind of took away the original interpretation of Smith's work. But then what role do you see for Marx and like, let's say, following socialist and communistic economists in yeah, it, terms of I, policy? I didn't want to bring Marx in this, not because I don't like Marx. I've written extensively on Marx. Yes, yes. But... What people are confused about, mm -hmm. actually people who call them Marxists are Leninists. They're not, they have not read Marx. So Marx was utterly uninterested in economic policy. Right. He had absolutely no idea, no belief that the state could improve matters. That's the reforms and policy. He just basically completely ignored how economic policies could be framed. And I mean, he said something about factory acts and so on. But he said nothing about poor rates because he basically was interested not in the poor, in the general dynamics of capital. And had I got into Marx, all kinds of people who see me, they have read Marx, they ah, but you know, Marx really says such and such, or Trotsky says such and such. I think that this is really a problem of economics pre Marx. And Marx took Ricardo so seriously that Marx was never going to contradict Ricardo. Marx model is that Ricardo was the, 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 the greatest thing ever. And he also, despite being very rich, was kind of tough on, on all this stuff. So Marx, Marx totally got uh, bowled over by Ricardo. And I know all that. So I said, no, I don't want to get into that. What I do say is that Marx's idea that economics is the basis of politics, I'm sort of flatly subverting it. But I didn't make too much of it because I didn't want to be 
diverted into these other issues, which, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was terribly boring going on and on about breakdown of capitalism and so on and all that. I've done all that. And I've written enough about that. <laughs> I've written a book called Marks of Revenge, which, which sorts all that out. So I wanted to not get into that because yeah. of it, uh, problems of people's uh, beliefs. I wanted to concentrate on what's thought to be sound economics, not ideologically, as Ricardo was the great God. And so I thought, let me, and uh, actually, it's not the only answer. I located it in the cover and Marxism. And I thought, I got the answer. I don't need to go into Marxism. Talk right. about poverty. Right. Nothing like that. He's not interested in this stuff. He basically wants to show that profit comes from exploitation. You know, that, you know, even if everybody thinks that the worker gets a fair wage for a fair day's work, there's still profits. And he wants right. to explain how come, how come worker willingly works and still the capitalist makes profit? What is the mechanism? And you use Ricardo to explain that. Okay. that that's it. I can do that in my sleep. But uh, that, is, that is not how policies are made now. Uh, okay. Policy, you know, Adam Smith and Ricardo. I first want to point out Adam Smith said nothing like this. Adam Smith okay. is a very generous person, and Ricardo and Marcus were the beliefs. So that, that, that I want to do. Adam Smith is my hero. Uh, and in Marx, my hero, and I don't like Marx and Ricardo. So, but <laughs> I wanted to very much concentrate on origins of a certain fallacy in economic policy. Right. So uh, I'm going to fast forward a bit now uh, to next. to the to last century, right? Like, I mean, as as you mentioned, the time we wasted on the John Keynes versus Pigou debate, and I mean, to the extent that in the past 20, 30 odd years, we have yeah, seen yeah. like the reemergence of Pigouvian economics back with the Kyoto Protocol and things like those popping up. But uh, there's an in- interesting anecdote that you mentioned yeah. about, uh, uh, I mean, not not to frame it in any incorrect way, but sort of breakdown of Keynesian economics post the great financial crisis of 2008. And so do you... So what I wanted to kind yeah. of ask you was, do you believe it to be an absolute breakdown to the extent that it would be eventually be replaced by a proper Pigouvian economics? Or do you see that uh, the kind of state that we're presently in, where Keynesian economics are, is being fine-tuned with some more like Pigouvian ideals put into it? Is that the way forward in, according to you? Or do you think we are completely broken down on the Keynesian side and this is something that a newer side that we'd have to take up? In the, I think, uh, okay, that's a good question. Basically, on the Keynesian economics, I do this detailed thing about Keynes versus monetarism mm-hmm. because the big debate, everybody ignored people and they moved on to discussing Keynes. So, people were neglected, you know, very few people. So, as a, I take up people later on. First, I want to be sure how. Even though there are two redistributive economics around, the one that was taken out, Keynes, got into all this controversy and then the Americans got into it. So I just wanted to describe that whole process. My is at the end of the 2008 crisis, more or less, both sides have been disgraced. 
neither side could locate or predict this breakdown, this meltdown. And now the heat has gone out. Okay, we know roughly what Keynesian economics is. We know what monetarists say. And there is no great thing about, oh, this is true, this is not true. We'll settle on uh, their problems with both systems uh, about forecasting. Right now, for example, uh, internationally, we have inflation, we have stagnation, and we're trying the same old stuff and not getting anywhere. There is no new thing in macroeconomics. The old things are there are ample, but we can go on trying that. But by and large, that is still the developed economy's problems. So basically, what what I then shift the discussion to the things that human the poverty as we now discuss and basic income, and then really go to the human development issue. Human development is a way of measuring uh, welfare, which is completely new, but it can be linked to people economics. And so I have, and my last chapter is the development of the people argument. In a way, it, it would be relevant to and measurable in all economies. So my view is that now are interested in measuring welfare the people way. Right. They are not just concentrated on full employment and low inflation, but they want to know about health and education and and you know sort of quality of life and so on. So economics has now finally got a face uh, uh, that. And some of it is already being done. The Human Development Index, which is right now there, is much, much more simpler from, from my point of view. I was, I was there developing it, so I know what this is. Picture motives with longevity and health and so on, included in the measure, so that we get a better idea of is the economy working for everybody or not. Right. is, don't worry about, you know, in, in India right now, everybody says, oh, our total GDP is the fifth highest in the world and so on. Well, thank you very much. That is because we've got a billion people. Uh, what is the longevity? What is the health? What is the... And let us also measure those, you know, not just go on about total income. India's total income has always been high because people used to come, travelers for the Golconda, you know, but the, the people were poor. So let, let, let us not worry about the the, the person diamond of the Mughal king. Let us <laughs> worry about the ordinary people. So the so last chapter is slightly more mathematical, but it says this is a way to measure. Yes. People have people agree on the last chapter. Uh, but I think it would it would be possible. You know, a lot of people are working on uh, Amazon will have worked on that. But I put it on Okay, Meghna, now I'm going to take a step back from the book and kind of focus on Meghna the okay. person, right? Uh, so you mentioned okay, at the beginning wow. that that you are a book uh, buyer, uh, well, you classify yourself as a book buyer over a book reader. So I actually would want, and I've always believed that, you know, every successful person, every person who's had thoughts worth listening to has always largely been a reader, right? So today I just wanted to kind of talk to you about, uh, if you could tell us where your love for reading began. Or, I mean, can you trace it back? Was it your parents who kind of got you into reading? Or was it always yeah, a natural affinity? I come from a family where everybody, on a Sunday afternoon, after a nice big 
lunch, we'd all be writing, uh, lying down and reading one or another. Everybody. Right. And I, I, I learned to read at the age of three or something. Right? It's ridiculous. What was interesting in those days, we didn't actually possess many books. We didn't have walls with books. But somehow books came, we read them, and they went. It's like a circulating library. Yeah. You know, from, from friends. And, you know. and uh, of course, uh, this was in Baroda, and we knew a very famous uh, Gujarati novelist, a man called Ramadal Desai, who was a friend of my grandfather. And then whenever he would write a new book, we would somehow get to read it and pass it on and so on. But basically, the reading books was, was everywhere read books. And when I was, you know, in my teenage years, my uncles, my mother's brothers were saying, unless you have read Lasky, you're no good. You have to go read Lasky. You've got to go read Bernard Shaw. So I basically just read and read and read. Uh, I had a morning college uh, in, in my undergraduate years. So at, at the end of the, the morning, I wouldn't go back home. I would have the food brought in, spend the afternoon in a library. And I knew after a while, I could wander in the stacks of the library because people say, Tum jake layout. <laughs> so I would just go and if I'd not heard of the name of an author, just take it and I read it. And so I just read and read and read. And then after a while, the Bombay University Library was there and so on. So I, 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 I own 10,000 books, uh, which are in store somewhere. But uh, no, so reading, reading extensively. Magazines, newspapers, books, novels, serious books. It is, you know, without limit has been my life. I've written 50 books. I've written 50 plus books. So, and, and then we're going to be more coming in. No, so reading is one of my greatest pleasures, or I shouldn't say one of my regular habits. Okay. And it, it's, a, it, it's great fun. Uh, and you know, then as a president is more economics, but even when I was doing economics, my colleagues were very surprised that I was doing lots of other things as well. Okay. I've written plays, I've read I've read plays and things like that, and all sorts of things. So it, it's fun. Right. Actually, Megna, that makes Read. me think like that's sorry. I think reading and writing is sort of life, you know. Yeah, uh, absolutely. My, my my life definitely is reading a life. <laughs> I think it should be everyone's. <laughs> but actually, Meghnath, what you said actually make, uh, makes me ponder about something, right? Because you're in, by profession, you're an economist. And you just said that, you know, your your colleagues uh, were often surprised that you were writing plays. And you mentioned you read novels and like all sorts of books. So uh, do you believe, I mean, what, do you believe that people yeah. ought to just read like nonfiction or fiction? Or what's your take on this entire uh, I mean, you know, there are a lot of people who speak about, you know, true reading is only when you read nonfiction and it enhances your knowledge. Or, um, I mean, people don't want to read nonfiction because fiction is the only way of consuming stories well, or something. I, 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 think, I think fiction is very interesting stuff. Uh, and um, I, I've read, of course, a lot of novels. All the time I've read a lot of novels. And uh, what was interesting to me was that uh, my, my first novel was a. Uh, was about how to murder a British Prime Minister. It's called uh, Dead on Time. Uh, and one interesting was, I, I belong to the Labour Party, I uh, used to be on the Labour Party. And when the, whenever the Labour Party wins an election and gets into government, 
there are a lot of miserable people because they don't like winning. They want to be in opposition all the time. Anyway, <laughs> so, so some people, I was having lunch with uh, some friends, you know, and one of them said, somebody ought to murder Tony Blair for doing what he's done. I said, uh, I know, I'm mean, very happy that Labour had won. I said, uh, pedantically, very few, only one British Prime Minister has ever been murdered. Um, so, uh, so then we thought, we'll all write a novel together and in different chapters. I went, how do we murder a British Prime Minister? So I sat down and I started writing. And before I know it, I, I had a plot and all that. Then I lost my manuscript and then I rewrote it. And Ruth Rendell, who was a, is a very good crime writer, she was in the House of Lords. So yeah. I thought I better, better take some advice. So I said to her, I said, Ruth, can I describe to you this plot? You know, so the nice thing about novels are you have to juxtapose all sorts of things, you know, in a limited amount of time, all that. And uh, <clears throat> after a while, she said, you know your problem? You are a chess player. You have this chess problem that you want to solve, but you're not interested in the in the pieces. But okay. why why is this person doing this? I said, you give them background. Will you please give them background? Okay. So it's a thing about all these people and where do they come from? What are they wearing? You know what what was, and so and I was very pleased that a really professional uh, in a crime story writer said to me it will work. And you know, unfortunately, the person who published it doesn't. Went bus is a new publishing went bus, but it is now available from HarperCollins in India. It's okay. called Data Time. And, and after that, each time I had an idea, I've written about five novels. Uh, oh, I enjoy reading novels, uh, writing novels very much, <laughs> and uh, because the whole different than than academic writing. Okay. Because you, you're God, you're God. You, yeah. you create people, you give them right. lives, you take them lives away. And uh, my latest one is something called Maya Bharat, yeah. which is uh, it's, it's called the, the untold story of how Lord Krishna died. Uh, and it basically recreates the circumstance under which Krishna dies. But in a, okay. I keeping most of the Mahabharata story intact, but in that, I'm into the range. And uh, the question basically, which I thought much of my lifetime, why should a god ever die unless he wants to die? That's fair. How can, how can I go down it? So, and why did, why did Krishna want to die? What happened and made Krishna want to die? So that started a whole uh, chain of uh, things. And look, it's very enjoyable because you can do what you like. It's, it's a free license. Right. In economics, I, I had rules and previous to children. <laughs> I used to write plays, but I don't write plays anymore. So I just have a few couple of last questions for you before I let you go. Uh, so I, I always hate asking authors their favorite book and particularly voracious readers like you. But instead, what I want to ask you is that uh, I really like to believe that, you know, individuals, there are certain books that you read over your lifetime, which really impact you in terms of either shaping your worldviews or your personality or your maybe your in relations with other people. This might be a fiction book or a non-fiction book or like multiple books. So, uh, I mean, if I had to ask you that question, which books would come to your mind over the years? Are there any books that have stood the test of time for you? Books that you keep going back to to kind of, I mean, if if, if you had to name a few books who defined Lord Meghna, which books would they be? 
You know, uh, when, I, when I was a very small boy, there was a book by a man called K. Munshi, who was a novelist, Gujarati novelist. Yes, yes. Uh, he was also a politician. Uh, he wrote a book called Word of Gujarat, Gujarat no Nath. Okay. The Nath of Gujarat no Nath. Right. Uh, it was about Siddharth Jaising and all And he was an amazing writer. And I would finish the book and tell it. And I read 27 times. And when my father said, now I ban you from ever reading this book. Wow. Which is never... Anyway, then later on, I, I discovered Ibsen, Henry Ibsen's plays. And I, just, I was just completely taken. I read Doll's House. And it kind of almost changed my life, you know. And, and those are basically... He's such an amazing author that he, he shuts all illusions. It, it may, makes you a rebel because he's, he's a rebel. You know, Dolph was about a very happily married woman leaving her husband and walking out and all that. And then I, I got into And then from then on, Tennessee Williams. Uh, later on, I, you know, I read, I read novels, quite, quite a lot of novels. But I wouldn't say that there is any particularly great, I mean, James Joyce, Ulysses, is, and I would read that again. But so now I read very few novels because I just, just don't read. But uh, I like big, fat novels, <laughs> which will keep me occupied for a long time and right. will be fairly complicated because I want a, want a sort of a broad canvas and lots of complications and things like that. And, uh, you know, it's... it's uh, Norman Mailer is another author. I, I, I like that very much. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, I'm trying to think of any, any other ones, but... Uh, <laughs> okay. No, but these, the, these I, are more than... I don't know. Sorry? Go no, these, these are some fantastic ones, and I'm really surprised to hear that you've read Nath of Gujarat 37 times. That's, <laughs> that's some dedication to reading that book. Kim Munshi was actually writing like Alexander Duma. Everybody said, oh, you're copying from Duma. But he had these very, very adventurous sort of characters. Right. And he, he more or less made up Gujarat history, glorified it much more. But Gujarat doesn't actually have a history, like, like the Marathas have. <laughs> and he basically was all the main pride about Gujarat and his, 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 you know, the empire they had. They had no empire, but it was great fun. It, the, the, imagine, and he has this beautiful uh, the, the, the love affair between this, this soldier and this beautiful woman, and then very hard at romantic uh, scenes. So he kept us all interested. And you know, well, he's it, it, an amazing one. And I, I read a lot of his novels, and he was very good. And you know, I, so I read a lot of Gujarati novels. I read some Marathi novels, and of course, Bengali, Sharachandra. The right. great Sharachandra Chatterjee, you know, is is absolutely amazing. I mean, I prefer him to Tagore. I think I think I, I'm, I'm not into, you know, Bengali poetry. You have to know Bengali to get Bengali. Right. You can't have in translation, but uh, novels you are easily translatable. So, I think Sharachandra is one of the greatest novels of all times, and so I I've read him quite a lot. Right. Okay. So, Meghna, just to ra- wrap up this. Khandekar mm-hmm. in, in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. 
so so megna just to wrap up this interview this has been absolutely fantastic but i have one one question which i ask all my all the guests on my podcast right i mean i believe in today's day and age but in particular uh, most writers uh given how the internet has boomed have become celebrities if not many celebrities at the very least and a lot of their uh lives are public in terms of what they do what they like to do things like that right and particularly goes out for you a celebrated economist and a house of lords member but uh one fun question which i ask almost all guests on my podcast is that uh if you could tell us one thing about you which the world doesn't really know as of now some fun anecdote about you or your life that you would like to share with us Oh, so many uh, <laughs> to share. What, 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 what? Uh, well, I guess uh, I'm a failed actor. Oh, okay. All I can, I'm a failed actor. I would have liked to be. I mean, I, I have acted in my in, in in my young days and so on, and I, I'm, I would have liked to be a much more successful actor than than I was. uh but somehow the chance never rose because i used to act in gujarati plays <laughs> and then when i was in america i even acted in some american plays uh okay. and but then somehow it all rolled and my acting career ended very early and i wish i was i had kept up with my acting career i was not very good but i was all right and i would have been a good middling <laughs> Middling type actor with the character roles, <laughs> put on a beard or a glass, whatever. And I would have liked to have done that, but was that this was this ambition only for theater, or was it for film as well? Would it be in seeing Nadia Sai in Bollywood or Hollywood as well, or was it just theater? No, no, no. I I have written on Bollywood, as you know. I wrote a book on Dilip Kumar. Right. I have written books on that, and I'm I'm. If you ever want to know anything about Hindi films of 1950s, call me up and I will tell you precisely who was in which film and and where it ran and all that. But uh, I I can't do contemporary films, but I I I do I know a lot about uh, 45 to 65. Uh, 1945 to 1965 Hindi films. Right. And I can I know all about that. Right. I wish I wish somebody would make a film about my books, but anyway, there we go. <laughs> Well, I I hope that dream comes true someday, and maybe you get to feature in that film as well. That would be two dreams coming true together. But uh, okay. thank you so thank you so much, Meghnath, for doing this. This was absolutely lovely. Uh, it was a great honor hosting you on this podcast, thank and I I hope you enjoyed yourself just as much as I did. Thank you so much. Thank you, Siddharth. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check us out on all our social media platforms. We are available across all podcasting platforms on YouTube, on Instagram. You can find us at the rate Kitabi Karwan on Instagram, or just search Kitabi Karwan on Google or a platform of your choice, and you'll find us. We carry out Instagram lives, giveaways. We talk about books. We talk to bibliophiles, talk to authors, and basically try and create a readers' world through all of our platforms. Do check us out, and don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Thank you.